sad part, Jerry, is that there has really not been a lot of changes in the last 30, 40, 50 years. The, the way we pay people was actually structured in the 1930s and 40s. We don't know. So even the most basic things that we do in compensation, which is how we structure incentives, how we structure compensation packages, and how we structure merit increases to drive performance, we don't know how much performance they drive. We don't have analytics behind our, our, our function. And that's how, that, that's what concerns me, that, that we, we are doing things without any data, simply on the assumption that everybody knows this works. But in the end, nobody works. Welcome to the Scale Up bi-weekly video series. Hi there, I'm Jerry Hu, your host for the show. I'm a people enthusiast when it comes to scaling startups. From San Francisco to Beijing, Tokyo, London to Singapore, join me as I interview senior HR leaders, founders, and venture capitalists at Alibaba, TikTok, Amazon, Netflix, Google, OpenAI, Sequoia Capital, and many more from around the globe. We'll be diving deep into topics surrounding talent strategies, the future of work, and the remarkable stories that have led them to the pinnacle of success. My guest this week is Dr. Furman Diaz, a rewards expert, ex-senior partner at Mercer, professor, top HR influencer, and book author. Over the last 40 plus years, Dr. Diaz has witnessed the evolution of the reward space through conducting his own research, teaching, and working with innovative companies across diverse international markets. One of his lifelong passions is to drive innovation and change in the rewards discipline, which unfortunately haven't gone through much transformation throughout the last 40 to 50 years. The way we think about rewards design, motivation, performance, and incentives are still largely based on an age-old job-based compensation system that was once developed to solve a labor crisis in the 1940s. In this thought-provoking episode, Dr. Furman Diaz shares his first-hand research and industry experience on innovative concepts and practices in the reward space. He also discusses the history and evolution he has seen over the last four decades, and the rationale behind why he urges us to challenge old assumptions and adopt a customized approach in the new design. Lastly, he shares his inspirational career story and advice for growth stage startup rewards best practices. Like what, what, you know, because you've really seen it, right? From very early on, uh, what, if you would summarize, what are the, you know, maybe top three or some of the biggest uh, shift or changes you have seen in, in the reward space? Although I think you mentioned that, uh, unfortunately, you haven't seen like drastic uh, changes, right? Not like in some other disciplines in recruiting or things like that. But what are the, I would, if, if we reflect back, like 30 years back, versus today, what are the, some of the biggest changes? The, the sad part, Jerry, is that there has really not been a lot of changes in the last 30, 40, 50 years. The, the way we pay people was actually structured in the 1930s and 40s. This all started with the hey sense of uh, uh, creating equity um, pay um, for legal purposes uh, later in, in the 50s um, to, to do um, equal pay for equal work. 
we are now 70 years away from when the legislation was first implemented and we were still dealing with gender-based pay inequalities. Um, the current Nobel Prize winner for economics uh, did all of her research on gender pay inequality. Uh, so no, we haven't made that big a change. <laughs> if anything, the biggest changes when we introduced flexible benefits, and that was back in the 90s, the last change that we saw in how we do compensation was literally 30 years ago. And I think that's a concern. It's a concern because the future of work is a completely new way of organizing how people and companies are associated with each other. Um, no. And yet we haven't yet changed the way we think. The, the, I, I could go on if you're interested, but suffice it to say that when you're asking me what changes have I seen in the last 30 years, very little. And then, you know, obviously the follow-up question is that, so what would you, you know, uh, conclude as like the biggest obstacles? Why Mindset. is it resisting? Mindset? Um, I think um, it, it's interesting, Jerry. You see, you, you said earlier something about the most numeric function. Yeah. That was true until HR analytics came about. The reality is, it looks like this. Mm -hmm. Recruiting is, is now much more analytical. They, they have a much better handle on um, assessment tests, competency models, and being better able to, to predict success. And success defined very simply as, we'll stay here three years and we'll do the job that we hire them for, uh, at least adequately. Uh, they have a better sense and, and a very numerical sensor to that. Even the training function now is much better at doing ROI of training. Is this particular training program uh, successful as defined by how much money did we invest in it and how much did the company benefit? Um, the area of compensation has nothing of the sort. We don't know simple things like, should we pay a 20% bonus or a 30% bonus. Which one gets us better performance? And then you see HR people scrambling like, well, you know, and then they'll try to give you all kinds of explanations. There's no data to go at that. And I think that's strange. We have no data, for instance, you, you talked about equity for um, your um, startup listeners. Yeah. yeah, for your startup listeners. Um, is a stock option better or is a restricted share better or is a performance share? But from the point of view of performance, which one will yield better performance from executive? We don't know. We can do the tax implications. We can do the dilution implications. We can do the market comparison, uh, but we can't really tell you which one actually drives better results. Um, even simpler, more mundane things like do merit increases really drive better performance? Every company gives out merit increases. Every company knows that when we give out merit increases, you have most of your population upset, very few that are happy. And yet we continue to do it every single year. We don't know. So even the most basic things that we do in compensation, which is how we structure incentives, how we structure compensation packages, and how we structure merit increases to drive performance, we don't know how much performance they drive. 
we don't have analytics behind our, our our function, and that's actually quite sad. That that's something that I hope will will start to change now that better tools are coming uh, on the market. But um, we, when I say mindset, which is where your first question was, I think mindset is everybody knows that money motivates, and we don't question it. And the reality is that maybe money isn't the only motivator, or money isn't even the reason people work. In my own research, for instance, I, I have gone around asking people, how much more are you willing to work for a difference of 2% in merit increase? On the assumption that the difference between, say, an average performer and above average performer is usually in the neighborhood of 2% of difference in base pay. And the reality is most people say, for the amount of difference in base pay, I wouldn't do anything. If you tell people, if I promise to give you an extra 2% of pay, how much more would you do? And the answer is nothing. I'd rather stay with the current pay and not do anything. So when we're dealing with merit pay increases, that about 80% of the people sort of go, I don't like this. And, and, I, and I saw some data from Josh Person that also says 70% of the people in his data say the same thing, 80% in the data I manage. Uh, why are we still doing this? That, that's what concerns me, that, that we, we are doing things without any data simply on the assumption that everybody knows this works, but in the end, nobody works. I, I'll give you one more example, Jerry. Everybody knows when we do employee engagement surveys that pay scores low. So every employee engagement survey will come back and say, I'm unsatisfied with my pay. And what's the typical reaction from senior management and even HR teams? Oh, everybody always says that, and then we do nothing. You know, imagine if we go survey our customers and our customers say, oh, I would really like if your product had more features and it cost less, which is probably something most customers or most consumers of your product will say. And then we say, yeah, customers are always want more for, for less. Let's not pay any attention to them. How far will your marketing department go if you all of a sudden decided not to listen to customers that say they want more features or a better price? But yet, when our employees tell us the same thing, we sort of say, ah, yeah, yeah, they're always unhappy. Let's, let's not worry about it. And then we do nothing. This is too, too prevalent. Um, we, we actually have the potential to understand data, and we don't. The simplest of all questions, which is with your engagement data, do you really know what is the impact that pay has on engagement and on turnover? Most compensation people actually don't know. Um, but also because um, the, the general consensus that, that money is necessary to motivate uh, doesn't always pay out. I've done a decent research um, to, to ask people this question. Um, you know, do you ever wake up in the morning thinking, what is it that you're going to do today? You're a standard employee in any company. Thinking, what are you going to do today to maximize my bonus? Now, if you're in sales, every morning you wake up and you say, yeah, this is the clients I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to try to sell. You're clear about this. But let's say you work in finance, marketing, or HR, or, or you know, compliance, cybersecurity. IT, you, and you ask them the same question, they don't know. They have no idea. They wake up in the morning and they're going to try to do the best job they can because they're just motivated by doing the best job they can. And hopefully somebody will notice at the end of the year and they'll get a bonus. 
when you ask people when they get their bonus on the day they get their letter how do you feel about the bonus the majority of people the majority of people still come back and say oh i got what i expected they're not happy they're not upset. the ones that are happy is i got more than i expect that's a small number and the ones that are upset are the ones that say i got less than i deserved notice the change in word it's not what i expected but what i deserved it might be what they expected because they already knew what their performance appraisal was but it's still less than what they thought they deserved so the problem again is just like with those two monkeys it's not that the ones that got paid more are more motivated it's that the ones that got paid less are more upset so uh, there's a lot of research on this and the data is all still there for anybody that cares to look at it uh, it's just that we are convinced that one size fits all, and we need to do everything the same way. And every employee is motivated by money, and, and let's just do that. Uh, so I know, you know, I, I got two follow-up questions on this, right? One is that I know you mentioned that, uh, you know, although there's uh, little change, right? However, you have seen some case studies like Shopify, uh, that you mentioned, and then for example, like Amazon, they never pay uh, bonuses as well, right? So there are still those uh, uh, companies that that that's been uh, playing around with, uh, you know, mixing up things a little bit. Uh, maybe like you know, to your acknowledgement that what are the the quite impressive, you know, at your lens companies that you've seen that they have been doing something innovative and they've been doing well. Um, I, I think the Shopify example is a good one. Uh, I've, I've lately heard that Samsung is experimenting. Uh, one of the areas of Samsung is experimenting as well. Uh, the the Shopify story, you can read about it in the internet. Um, uh, so for anyone that's interested, I, I, I urge you to go check them out. Um, it, it's simple. In, in its concept, uh, hard to implement, but simple in its concept. And this is what they've thought. What they've thought is just like benefits, we provide benefits that are differentiated, that people have a choice. Um, the same is true of pay. Um, and then you can choose if you want all your pay in base salary, or if you want some of it in variable pay or more of it in variable pay. There, There's another experiment that I heard about uh, at Unilever, where actually that had a discount factor. So if you wanted to move more base pay into bonus, you can do it at, I forget what the number was, maybe 0.9. So you got extra money. But if you wanted to do it the other way around, more bonus into base pay, you did it at a discount at, say, 0.9. And surprisingly, to even the folks uh, there, more people chose base salary. So from, from the point of view of, of even a startup, um, who do we need to motivate? We need to motivate mostly our sales force. Uh, so anybody involved in sales, I would still say, yes, by all means, variable pay, because they believe in it, they like it, they understand it, and they know on a daily basis what they need to do to earn that money. But the majority of people doesn't really understand that. And so when we try to link too much pay to how things are working, um, most people don't get it. They're going to come and try to do the best job they can, and they'd rather not have to go through all this struggle with, with variable pay. 
So what these companies are doing are giving people choice. You choose. You believe that you can make more money by going into bonuses? Great. You believe that you're better off just all base salary? Also great. We will accommodate either side. From the HR point of view, since motivation through money is really, other than the sales forces and maybe the senior executives, is suspect, but attraction and retention will be much more better served with higher base salaries and lower bonuses for those people that choose to have higher base salaries and lower bonuses, then it makes an immense amount of sense to, to change the way we approach compensation like Shopify did to allow people to choose how they want to be paid because then they'll be more attracted to come to, to Shopify and they'll be more attracted to stay at Shopify. Uh, and that's a large part of our agenda in HR today, particularly in a world where unemployment is down and talent is scarce, finding talent and keeping talent is, is, at this point, probably a bigger part of our agenda than it is to motivate talent. And then just motivate the ones that we really need to be motivated through money, which I said is sales and maybe senior executives. And, uh, you know, one follow-up question, like, do you also happen to know, like, why did Shopify, you know, uh, implement such a thing? Uh, like, like forever for whoever is, you know, is in, uh, so we already know the, the, the success, right. Sort of, of this case study, but for whoever is interested to know the context and if interested to attempt the similar things, like what was the context and why did they try such a thing? Um, in, in general, the way I understand it is that, um, nowadays we are dealing with, uh, employment, uh, populations that are quite dissimilar. There, there are people that want to work at the office, people that never want to work in the office, people that are happy just to work sometimes at the office, uh, people that don't want to be promoted to supervisors. We have people that like working projects, people that like working gigs. So the future of work is no longer the future, it's today. And there are companies, and I think Shopify is one of them, that have already understood that for them, their workforce is going to be this very mixed type of workforce with very different needs um, and, and very different styles of working. A traditional company, uh, even if they have all of these types of employee contracts on hand, tends not to treat everybody the same way. They tend to say, well, if you're a full-time employee, you will get this pay package with this incentive system uh, tacked onto it. But if you're a gig employee, you get no, no incentive pay. It's only a fixed amount based on whatever it is you're doing. Or if you're a project-based, you probably also get no variable pay, only fixed. So we, we somehow think that to motivate people, if they're full-time employees, we need to pay them with a bonus. But if they are working with us and they are project or gig type of workers, then we don't need a bonus. So what, what Shopify sort of realized is that we were being completely inconsistent. We were paying people because of how we hire them differently, as opposed to because of how they want to be paid differently. And then they also understood that some people chose to go on the project side or chose to go because they prefer to be paid. So, so what they did is they, instead of having people sitting next to each other with very different ways of being paid because of their contract, they basically said, you choose. You decide how you want to be paid and then we'll pay you accordingly. 
but it's always going to be your choice. And that made it a much easier, I think, proposition to hire and to retain uh, in this sort of new environment that, that we live in. That gets complicated with people that, that don't work in the same location, then how are you going to pay them? Um, that, that, that's an added complication. In fact, it's interesting that HR doesn't even have control of, of all these other modes of pay because sometimes the gig workers or the project workers are get paid by procurement or they get paid directly by the line. Yes. And they don't charge. So all of a sudden we have this lack of equity going on because HR only manages one percentage of employees and a large percentage that gets managed elsewhere. And, and they may be sitting next to each other working. So I think that's what Shopify eventually did. They realized that the, their problem was was how to retain all kinds of employees from all uh, types of employment contracts and not just the full-time ones. Uh Since we're on this startup topic here, your lens, like what are the biggest, uh, you know, things or challenges that you've seen or people are doing it wrong in the reward side? And it could be startup, it could be scale up, yeah. Um, when you first are starting out, obviously you, you can't really, I mean, you don't have the cash flow to, to do uh, all the things you'd want to do. So uh, all you can do is, is basically where most people start, which is I can't pay you a lot of base salary, but I'm going to give you yes. this promissory note that if we survive and we make it, then here's the money. I, I think that part is okay. As the companies start to grow, um, the next thing to do in compensation is to fuel the growth and don't worry too much about anything else. And you probably are going to bring in a completely different breed of people who are not necessarily long-term oriented in the least. They're, they're in there to help you fuel that growth. Those people likely don't need equity. Those people just need bonuses. Uh, and you need to make the bonus uh, self-finance. In other words, on everything you sell, uh, whatever... A profit margin you have in it, uh, part of that profit margin goes to pay incentives. Um, and, and that way you can fuel the growth um, for as long as you want. And only the people that you really intend to be there for the long term, that is the people who are the brains on the operation or the people who are going to help you open beachheads, either in new product areas or in new markets, those people may need equity. Those people need to make, in, need to make bets on the long term. Everybody that's just on, on the fueling of growth, they don't need to. It's only the people on the, on the new area. As the company then grows even more, then you need to build in more structure. And then by then, you sort of get the sense that not everybody that you're going to hire is in it for the long haul and not even has the entrepreneurial spirit. Some people are just there because it's a job and they're only willing to stay for two, three, five years like yeah. they would anywhere else. So it's perfectly okay. Then those people, I also wouldn't spend any time or money giving them equity. Uh, what you probably need to figure out is, is how to attract and retain that staff to, to produce for you as much as possible so that you can get your, your return on investment on what you pay them. It, it's interesting, Jerry, because when you ask this younger generation, uh, in fact, when you ask right now, most employees, uh, do they ascribe any value to long-term incentives and they say no because they never really intend to stay in the company more than three years anyway so you can tell them as much as you want about the equity and the pot of gold at the end of whatever rainbow you want to tell them they're not interested because they've never intended to stay that long so 
um, un unless you're really doing it for cash flow purposes, probably not not good investment in money. So I think that's what I, a lot of people do wrong. They're trying to figure out how much equity we need to stretch to pay everybody, and and they get into series C's and D's, and 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 now find out that they've given so much equity to employees, and they don't know how to sort of take it back, and and they the the owners and the founders end up giving a lot of the equity to to the PC, to the PEs and the VCs and whatnot, and and, and the employees have another fifteen percent, and by now they they have a lot less. So I I would be a lot more judicious about who gets these shares going forward. Um, I I think that's the main thing I see is wrong. The last thing I see that's wrong is that when they grow from startup to to sort of growth, and then from growth to a bit more mature. They they don't put structure around pay, and so they end up with different people that are paid disparate amounts simply because they came in at different times. Uh, you know, you came in early. You were one of the ones that took a low base pay uh, in exchange for yes. the equity, and then you came in later. So I'm going to give you a high base pay with no equity, and all of a sudden you find people with very disparate pay packages. So one thing that you need to do as you grow is to find a way to structure around the same notion of, of fairness and equity. So, okay, another topic on, on, on this site, right, is benefits. Uh, you know, as you know, <laughs> startups, usually they have no benefits. Right. Uh, what are the some of the you know, and then that's sometimes because their budget, sometimes it's really just because they don't pay attention to it. Um, any you know sort of advice uh, you could give to founders? Uh, I've also seen right quite interesting uh companies that they don't have the budget, but they have you know very very interesting benefits, right? And if you you you've seen Netflix in the early days, right? You can take leave whenever you want. Or these days, some tech companies, you know, you 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 can work thirty percent of the time wherever you want, uh, uh, you know. And then we're gonna do a lot of you know employee resource groups to support you. We're gonna send you small gifts, but it's it's quite uh, touchy feely in a sense, but it's quite good. Employees like that, right? And it doesn't require a lot of money. Uh, what are your thoughts on you know the topic of benefits for startups? Should they pay attention to it? Yeah. Uh, they should actually because benefits allow you to to both tailor your packages to your staff and at the same time to provide more value for less money. Let, let me try to explain those two quickly. Um, by tailoring benefits, the, the whole notion of flex benefits is, is already uh, well-tilled land. Um, so uh, we, we don't have to recreate uh, too much of it. Uh, what, what we know, for instance, is that different people value different benefits. Um, I, I would always encourage people to have a minimum level of health benefits. Um, that's probably the least that you will need. Um, and, and that shouldn't be negotiable. And then provide flex benefits as quickly as you possibly can. And that's usually uh, over 100 employees. Once you get to 100 employees, it becomes feasible to do flex benefits. And, and you'll get the companies that do flex benefit administration to pick up your case and to, and to help you, either brokers, or, or just uh, benefit administrators. Um, so that's that's actually quite straightforward. Now, 
the reason I say value for money is interesting is because this this concept that different people value things in different ways. Um, when you ask a, a young single person what kind of benefit they would like most, typically the answer is going to be more free time. That is the one thing that they value above all others. However, free time is fairly free for the company. Fairly free. If somebody actually has a job where they're doing client servicing day to day and they go out and somebody has to replace them, then no, then there's a cost. But if somebody has an office job, um, coding, whatever, and they take a day off, typically they will work harder before they go and leave to try to leave their work. And then when they come back, they also work harder to catch up. So in that sense, a free day is almost free to the company, yet to the employee is worth one day of wages. So benefits allows us to create more value, more perceived value at a lower cost. Um, so it's a very smart way to, to actually uh, structure pay. But you just need a large enough group. And like I said, maybe starting at 100 people or so in your company to, so that you can generate these, uh, these types of benefit alternatives. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind telling whoever is listening uh, a little bit about, you know, the things you're working on and then how how can they find you if they're, you know, interested to know more about what you were talking about today? My whole life in the area of rewards, uh, I've spent maybe the last 20, 25 years working in analytics uh, and uh, also in, in the implementation of strategy through people. So these are three topics that I normally talk about. And I teach at the university. This year, uh, I, I've been writing a blog on two areas that I think are are cutting edge in the HR world. One, as you mentioned, is is the whole notion of how we need to transform pay for the future of work. Um, the other one I've been writing about is um, uh, how do we use Gen AI in uh, in the HR world. Uh, that that's an area that has gotten a lot of resistance um, from the HR community so far. But I think uh, it's an area that's worth uh, studying and analyzing because I, I think that this uh, is, is uh, something that's going to happen. So if you're interested in any one of those two topics, all, all you need to do is, is uh, look for me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm easy to find for me in the SPHD. Uh, and uh, please, uh, please look for the blogs uh, in my posts, uh, like a few of them, and that way they'll keep coming onto your feed. Um, I'm speaking at two global conferences this year, one here in Singapore, it's a global HR conference, uh, where we're going to touch again on the topic of, uh, of uh, GPT and uh, how to get uh, Gen AI embedded into the HR world. And in the um, conference in uh, Cincinnati, which is the World of Work Global Conference on Rewards on New Pay. Uh, so hopefully I'll uh, see some of you. Please link with me on LinkedIn. Try not to follow. Try to connect directly so I know who you are. And uh, please uh, write to me if you have any questions at all or if I can be of any help. So here are the key takeaways for me. In a world where personalized services are the norm, especially for millennials and Gen Z, it's reasonable to expect the same level of customization in our employee space structure. We need to be sharper in listening to employees clearer in our communication, and more agile in implementing changes. Benefits allow us to create more perceived value at a lower cost. Thank you so much for watching or listening to the Scale Up episode this week. 
If you haven't already, definitely check out the bi-weekly newsletter I shared on the podcast description with detailed write-ups of this interview. Also, feel free to give me a rating or a comment if you have any feedback for the show as well. See you in the next episode.